Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is February 24th, 2010, and my guest is Catherine Newman, the Malcolm Stevenson Forbes Class of 1941, Professor of Sociology and Public Affairs at Princeton University. She's the author of many books. The one we'll talk about today is Shoots and Ladders, Navigating the Low-Wage Labor Market, which came out in 2006. Catherine, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you, Russ. So this book is an outgrowth of an earlier book you did and an earlier study and, and research you did on the working poor. Talk about the field work you did and the uh, how the sample was, was created. Who, who are the people you're going to be talking about and who you looked at? In the middle of the 1990s, I got interested in the lives of the working poor because so much of the research in my field on poverty focused on those who are part of the welfare system which has never been popular, even among people who are on welfare. And my feeling was that sociologists and to a large degree economists as well had really ignored the large number of poor people in the United States that work for a living in favor of studies that focused on the dynamics of the welfare system. And because I was living at uh, on the Upper West Side of New York where I was teaching at Columbia University, Harlem was right next door to me. In fact, I lived on the edge of Harlem. And it was evident to me that people in Harlem were going to work in very large numbers. You could see them every morning on their way to work um, in neighborhoods that, by any standard of measurement, would be regarded as very poor. You still had a very large number of workers. In fact, uh, my statistical examination of central Harlem, where I did most of this field work, um, showed that in this very poor neighborhood, over two-thirds of the households had at least one worker in them, but they were still very poor. So this begged the question, who are these people, and what's the role of working poverty in poverty? <clears throat> Which was surprisingly not a question asked at the time. So I decided to, to pursue this by studying a sample of people who worked for a large and will remain unnamed fast food chain who were part of this large labor force in the service sector in Harlem. And so the people I began following were the 200-some-odd people who had jobs at these fast food restaurants throughout Harlem and another 100 people who had applied for those jobs and failed to get them. So the first book on this subject was called No Shame in My Game, The Working Poor in the Inner City, and it both made use of survey data and interviews and then very detailed studies that took more than a year to gather the material for about a handful of people who I thought of as emblematic of certain categories of people in that Harlem workforce. So my study is meant to be representative of people who were working in the low-wage service sector, principally in the fast food industry. But then by the time I finished that book, Welfare reform was a, a, a fact. It hadn't been when I started, but the welfare reform bill was passed in 1996. And the question of what would happen over the long run to the nation's working poor became much more vivid in people's minds. And I had now this very deep acquaintance with people who were exactly those that the welfare legislation was uh, envisioning would be, would be the fate of those who had been on welfare. They would enter this kind of labor market. <clears throat> So the question of what happens to people in this kind of labor market over time was the question that animated shoots and ladders. And so I had two main concerns here. One, I wanted to know if you entered the labor market in a job like this, low-wage, fast food, was it really true that it would be a dead end, that you would go nowhere? Or were there mobility possibilities for people who entered the, the low-wage labor market? Of course, you could go down, too. You could go down. You could go and, – and you, you don't see a lot of 60-year-old cashiers at, at fast food restaurants, so it's clear you don't stay there forever, but the question well, is – Well, you stay there a lot longer if you're in Harlem than if you did on Long Island. Yeah, that's probably uh, the, true. The labor turnover in high unemployment areas of New York City in those jobs is actually much, much less, much slower than in healthier uh, labor markets. 
But the second question I had was, what would it mean if you had thousands and thousands of low-skilled people coming off of the welfare rolls into that labor market? Would the people that I found there to begin with, who had not been part of the welfare system, um, be hurt by this flood of new entrants to the labor market? And those are the questions I really began with. That that second question, of course, is similar to what people worry about with immigration. Mm-hmm. You have a new or an ongoing or continuing group of what appears to be competitors, and what's the impact on you? And obviously economists debate this a lot. It's something we haven't talked much on this program about. I tell the listeners out there, I hope we get to it soon, actually, because it's an issue that's very important. But this is a related issue, obviously, in in how labor markets work. So tell us what you found. Uh, It's hard to – let me just say the book's very poignant. Uh, There's a lot of – it's a very nice mix of narrative with fact. The narrative part is extremely poignant, the lives of many of the people that you talk to and their ups and downs. Uh, Try to summarize it as well as you can because obviously each person is different, which is the charm and power of of case study. But try to give us some idea of what patterns you did find. So here's what I found. First of all, contrary to what I expected and what I think most uh, economists expected at the time – most of the people in my study did very well. About a third of them were no longer poor at all by the time I finished the final follow-up, which was eight years after I began the original research for No Shame in My Game. Um, One of the reasons why that was possible was that the period of my follow-up intersected one of the very strongest labor markets we have had since the Second World War. So in the late 1990s, um, and right up, basically right up to about the year 2001, we had record low unemployment in the United States. We had very high growth. We had very low inflation. And these conditions were sort of what would we call it, perfect weather as opposed to a perfect storm. It was they, a good time. They, they were very good times, uh, you know, possibly not to be repeated in my lifetime. I, I hope I'm wrong about that. But Ditto. it was a um, almost uniquely good time. And that period was kind not only to those of us at the top end of the skill ladder, but it actually made a very big difference for people at the bottom. There were tremendous opportunities opening up to them relative to what might have been the case if if I'd done that study 10 years later. And so this was important from my point of view because it suggested that some of the dominant language of the time, that these people were damaged, that they didn't know how to seize opportunity, that they are sort of fundamentally intended for the low-wage labor market was, was incorrect, that if opportunities presented themselves, they would run for them, and they did. And so part of my purpose in Shoots and Ladders was to describe the pathways to upward mobility and the ways in which those people who managed to succeed did so. And there were a number of different pathways among them. One was that when labor markets tightened, the firms they were in began to grow. And they were growing even in inner city neighborhoods. So they were, uh, these fast food agencies were uh, expanding, creating new shops, uh, and they were pulling employees off the shop floor in the original restaurants and promoting them into management as the firms grow. So in a high-growth industry, opportunities open up even for people at the bottom uh, to move up within the organization. And even if those are short job chains, which is characteristic of service sector employment, if there are new establishments opening up, there will be uh, much more opportunity than, than there would otherwise be, which what seems you, sort of... What do you mean by short job chains? Not very many rungs of, of, on the ladder above your head. Mm-hmm. Um, Service sector industries tend to be like that. They, they don't have a lot of promotion possibilities in them relative to other kinds of industries. But if there are many, many establishments opening up, a managerial you know, labor force is needed to, to monitor them, and people can move up off the shop floor to do that, and that's what happens. So that was one route to upward mobility. Another route to mobility was to um, get more education, and that's the one that I think most economists rely on to, to develop more skill, either through education or training. Um, One of the interesting things about the book is the range of skills that people went after, the range of institutions they attended. People, you know, economists tend to, I think, 
often very narrowly think of high school, college, graduate school. <laughs> but there's a lot more educational opportunity out there for people at the with low skills that your sample took advantage of. That's true. Um, for example, one young man who I describe in the book um, worked for this fast food um, firm for, well, three or four years at least. And during that time period, he attended a trade school where he got a certificate in um, refrigeration and air conditioning, which is actually quite costly. It was really very expensive. Uh, as I recall, it was somewhere around $3,500 to get that credential. But once he got it, he could earn four times the hourly rate that he was earning on the fast food shop floor. So you ask yourself, how did he do that? Um, after all, his earnings were so low, how did he afford it? And the answer is that those workers who were fortunate enough to live in households where someone else could take care of the cost of living, you know, put a roof over their head, put food on the table, were creating their own financial aid system out of their earnings. So this young man lived with his aunt and uncle. They paid for his room and board. They didn't charge him. He could take all the money he earned and put it toward this certificate, and that's what he did. Which is still hard to do. Oh, it's not easy to do <laughs> at there's, all. There's a lot of other things you want to spend money on, obviously. Exactly. But he was very determined. He knew if he got that certificate that he would be able to earn a lot more money, and the day he finished was the day he quit uh, his fast food job and went to job fairs. We attended job fairs. My field team did with him. And he picked up uh, a job in air conditioning repair, which paid him way more than he'd been earning as a fast food worker. So, so that traditional route, if you will, the human capital route was there, the upward mobility route through firm expansion. Some of the workers that I studied were not doing better themselves in terms of their own occupations, but the mix of their households changed. And so the mobility of their families or the, the economic stability of their families was much more positive than it had been in the past. And that can happen when workers marry, when their children get old enough to go into the labor force, and the ratio of workers in the household to non-workers changes. So in some instances, the mobility wasn't the mobility of an individual. It was, in a sense, the mobility of the household that reflected its a compositional change. One thing I was struck with, uh, kept thinking of as I was reading the book, was the famous, uh, I think it's F. Scott Fitzgerald to Hemingway, or I can't remember which direction the quote goes. One of them says, you know, the rich are different, they have more money, yeah. uh, which is, you know, what's charming about that quote is, of course, it's it's on the surface, it's just a, a fact, and that's all that's different about the rich, they have more money. And, of course, having a lot more money is really has a lot of implications. It certainly does. So as I read your book, I was thinking, you know, the poor are different, they have less money, Uh which is a huge part of their problem, of course, but it's compounded by family issues, drugs, uh, cultural challenges, racism, uh, the the panoply of of things and challenges and hurdles that the folks in your study overcome and sometimes, sadly, fail to overcome uh, is really a rich portrait of what there is in their lives other than just money and other than just, say, education. Talk about some of those factors. That's very true. Um, let, me, let me give an example which will help to illustrate your point. One young woman in my study had, uh, at the time that I met her, she had a son who was about two years old, and she just simply didn't earn enough money to pay for child care. She was earning about 25 cents more than the minimum wage at the time. So the only way she could stay in the labor market was to get her mother who had been on welfare for decades at that point, to watch over her little boy. And her mother was willing to do that. The, the relations between them were fairly instrumental. That is, the mother expected to be paid something to do this. But it was a whole lot less than a formal child care center would, would ask. So people who had family members to rely on to provide for them the kinds of services that all the rest of us can pay for to stay in the labor market, especially child care, could stay in the labor market and, and create a kind of steady work biography that was much more appealing to employers than people who didn't have those kinds of family supports and were frequently having to leave work because their child was sick, because the babysitter didn't come, because they didn't have enough money to pay the babysitter. 
those kinds of uh, problems, which really have to do with who will help you and who will not help you in a low-wage economy, um, really make a difference. In Doesn't your she end up? Pardon me. Doesn't she end up? Is it a grandmother, though, who was cheaper at yeah, one point? she did. She did. <laughs> it's so an incredible story. She's sort of moving around looking for who the best deal, so to yeah. speak, within her family circumstances. There were other families, in fact, related to, to this one, because some of the people I studied were related in multiple ways, where there was no money changing hands at all, where you had people working literally 24 hours a day. So they were eight hours on, eight hours looking after someone else's child, eight hours sleeping, and everybody kind of transferring themselves around those uh, requirements uh, on a 24-hour basis. But if you didn't have people who would help you, then it doesn't really matter how good a worker you are or how dedicated you are, your family circumstances will make it impossible for you to stay in the labor market. And that has huge consequences because people who stop out look very checkered to the next yep. employer. So a steady work biography is essential, and if you are a low-wage worker, the likelihood is that steadiness will depend a lot on your family circumstances and the sort of connections and networks you possess that will come to your rescue. But one of the, interestingly, one of the workers you talk uh, at length about jumps – he doesn't stop out a lot. That is, he's, he's – I think from the impression I got was that he's employed most of the time, if not almost all the time. But he moves a lot from job to job, partly because he has trouble sometimes staying employed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the employer can – sometimes there's some uh, anger issue or some event happens and he, or he messes up. But he's always able to find another job, not a particularly, not a particularly better one until the end of, of his story, which turned out f- uh, with a radical move. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about his example and whether that's typical or not because I was surprised because you know, in a – and in a higher education world, when you apply for a job, you have to show your work history. Right. If you're only on each job for three months, it, uh, it's, it, it doesn't look good. So talk about that. Yeah, so we're talking about Jamal, who is an African-American. Who not his I'm, real name. But, I'm, yeah. No, that's not his real name. There are no real names in that book. Um, he was about 23, I think, when I met him. And he had had continuous employment. He had always worked. He had always worked more or less since he was about 13. So he had a very long work history, but exactly as you described it, it was very choppy. He didn't keep jobs for very long. He, he did have a temper. He didn't like being uh, put at the bottom, but he had very little education, so it's not surprising that he ended up there. So he went from one lousy job to another, but he was almost never without a job. And that was a, a defining characteristic of the working poor that I studied. They were rarely unemployed but didn't always have jobs that were very stable uh, or work patterns that were very stable. Now, in the late 1990s, when I was doing this study, it was quite possible for someone like Jamal to do that, to job hop. It would be much harder to do that now. So the economic conditions surrounding uh, a job seeker or job holder really make a difference. You will have much more slack to job hop if there's very high... um, very high demand for your labor and very low supply. So we had really tight labor markets. I mean, in some parts of the country, like Massachusetts, for example, um, unemployment was down to about 2%, which is so low that employers were lining up outside the prisons and waiting for men to come out of prison, trying to get them on training courses while they were inside, um, and then hiring them the instant they stepped out. Now, we don't see that now. Well, and we won't see that for eons. Well, uh, we don't know. I hope it's not eons. But I, I want to step away from that particular story, though, and ask you a more general question related okay. to what, what, you're, what you're talking about. So right now we have very high unemployment relative to the mid-'90s or even the, the mid-'80s when, when things improved after a, a, a very bad recession. Right. So we had a bad recession in the early-'80s, a very mild one in, in the early-'90s, a mild one in 2001, and a really bad one right now. And right now, the unemployment rate's very close to 10%. It's mm-hmm. 9.7. We're taping this in February of 2010. And, of course, a lot of people believe, I think correctly, that it's understated because people have given up. You have to be looking actively for, for a job to answer the question to be counted as unemployed. Mm-hmm. So unemployment right now is very high. But there's a weird pattern – not a weird there's – a, there's a pattern within that high unemployment rate that I think is true – in the past as well that I that I want to hear your thoughts on, which is it varies tremendously by education. 
Uh, it also varies by income, but I think that's a very – it's misleading. What's really going on is education. In America today, in the middle of this recession, if you have less than a high school diploma, your unemployment rate is dramatically higher than if you have a college degree or an advanced degree. I'm sure that was true in 1996 too or 1998. And the reason I thought – I think about that – so even though the labor market was booming and, and it was tight, it was a good time to look for a job because employers – there was a lot of growth. There was employers eager to find people and struggling sometimes to find people. I'm sure it was true that among people who had little education, which is a lot of your sample, that the unemployment rate was, was still fairly high, what we would call the measured unemployment rate. It, and, it, and in fact, one more fact from your study, as you point out, the even in, in these good times, employers turned down – I think you said 12 out of 13 candidates for your fictionally named Burger Barn fast food chain. That figure comes from uh, the period before the boom. By the time – so that figure of uh, – uh, I think it was like 13 uh, – yeah, One out of 13 one folks out of get – 13. There's 13 applicants for every opening. Right. At, at a, that, that comes out of the early period, the beginning of my study, which was long before this tight labor market and my uh, study of their mobility. So in the beginning, in you know, like 1992, 93, 94, when we're first beginning this study, unemployment was very high. It was very high in Harlem in particular. Uh, it was 18% in yeah. Harlem, measured unemployment. Right. So that was the period in which this ratio was born. But by the time we get to like 1997, 98, 99, we're talking about an entirely different situation. We're talking about really record low unemployment rates. Now, in Harlem? Even in Harlem. For mm-hmm. Harlem. For Harlem. I, yeah. it's, so yeah. I don't disagree with you that unemployment rates are higher for the low-skilled than for college uh, graduates. That's always been the case, and it was, in the, it was the case even when we had very, very low unemployment. It was higher. But it was really low relative no, to I understand. bad periods. So there were people who uh, would be regarded by employers as bad bets, and they would be passed over. But at this period in time, even people coming out of jail were yeah. looking more attractive because the alternatives weren't there, and that's partly because the alternatives were moving up the ladder. And so what I was looking at, I, I think of it as the very best of all possible worlds for the people I was interested in. And that has not been the case since, and I don't know that it will ever be the case again. But, but what was important, I thought, although accidental, I must confess, that is when I started the follow-up, I really was just interested in what would happen to these people over time as welfare reform unfolded. Nobody knew there was going to be an incredible economic renaissance, uh, including me. It just landed on top of my study. But it turned out to be very interesting that I did the follow-up during a period of great prosperity because it sort of reveals the limitations of a cultural argument that says the reason why people don't do well if they're low-skilled is that they're not motivated, they're uninterested, they have poor skills, they have you know, no experience, nobody wants them, they and don't they're stuck for life. They don't understand the work culture. Or the... Yeah, all of the above. That really can't explain how it could possibly be the case that almost overnight unemployment falls to such rock bottom and you start to see very high employment rates among young black men who are usually the ones at the absolute end of the caboose. The cultural argument doesn't work very well to explain how such a dramatic change could happen almost overnight. Well, you know, the the stories you tell, the, 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 the poignance of them, Really does illustrate, um, you know, the the flip side of that uh, the Fitzgerald Hemingway thing. The poor are just like us, uh, other than the fact that they don't have money. In the sense, as you point out, many places in the book, they're ambitious. They want to take care of their kids. They're savvy. They understand the inside cultural, informal, not written down anywhere rules for how to get ahead. At least in your sample. I mean, one mm-hmm. of the the reason I mentioned the twelve out of thirteen is that presumably there are people who are worse off than the working poor, and potentially are not employable at all because they don't have these cultural savvy. Oh, there there certainly are, and uh, I can't claim any uh, expertise from this book about people who are out of the labor force altogether. I only looked at people who were working or looking for work. But the proportion of people who, are, who were out of the labor force in the sense of never having held a job 
was so it's tiny. Very small, yeah. No, that's I right. don't even think it's worth wasting the paper to write a book about them. I they're agree. they're just too too small that. a group. So to me, the groups that really do matter as as social scientists or policy analysts are people who are or have been part of the labor force, and that is about ninety eight percent of the of the people yeah, of adult right. uh, adults in the country. So those are the ones that I feel like I have something to say about. Now, for those who didn't do well, because I don't want to represent my study is one that found everybody was a success story. That's no, it's a half-empty, half-full story. right? Yeah, so there were certainly people who did not do well. I, I broke the, the findings or the patterns into three groups. There was a group we've just finished talking about. I call them the high flyers, the people who did very well and did better than they ever would have expected or I would have expected. Some making fifty to $70,000 a year yep. because they got that certificate or they, they switched jobs. They got a got... job with FedEx. I, I forgot to mention that the fourth route to upward mobility was to find a unionized job. Mm-hmm. That was very important to these workers. And uh, some of them found public sector jobs that are unionized, city, uh, you know, the city labor force, which is really the holy grail for many of them, a civil service job. Um, others found jobs that were either literally union jobs or in industries that were heavily unionized and therefore competing with union shops for, uh, for labor and had fairly good wages and benefits packages. So the union element in all of this was really very important. That said, uh, as you know, unions are declining sharply as a proportion of the labor force, especially the private sector labor force. So have been steadily since about 1950. So, exactly. Yeah. So in, in saying that unions were very important, I mean to point to how critical they were for those who found union jobs, but I'm very aware that this is historically sensitive and it's almost evaporating. It's almost going the way of the dinosaurs. Well, it exactly. wasn't It wasn't very common in 1997 either, so it's interesting that – uh, you know, you, you don't know which way causation runs in that story. I'm, I'm curious how many. I know it's just a rough approximation; it's a case study. But of those high flyers, how many of them were in those union jobs? About a third of uh-huh. a third. Okay, so carry on. So you have the, you have the high flyers. You have the, the high flyers. Then you have this middle group that I would describe as people who had made headway. They were ahead of inflation, but not much. They weren't secure. They weren't really very secure, but they were certainly better off. They would have said they were better off. They, they had better jobs. They moved from fast food into retail, some other kind of retail, for example. They had jobs that were less dirty or less despised. Or more prestigious. Or more, right. Yeah, a little bit more prestigious. Um, but if they were doing better, it was probably because they married or found a partner. There had to be something else going on in their household because their wages didn't shift that much. They didn't fall behind. They moved up a little bit in prestige, but they weren't earning a lot more, and they certainly weren't going to be able by themselves to make a huge difference in the material standard of living. But that was sort of a middle group. And then there was a group at the bottom that really was in trouble. They really were skidding along the bottom, in and out of the labor force, often with depression issues, often with uh, alcohol problems themselves or in the family, very often derailed by illness, and this is where the whole health insurance issue becomes very uh, poignant for them, because they were often derailed not because of something that was problematic for themselves, but a relative who needed to be taken care of, a kid, a parent, uh, and they're in a very fragile situation with respect to access to health care. And so any of those things could derail these, these people, and then they would be in and out, in and out, in and out, and had a very scarred kind of track record. So I do not want, you know, I, I tend to talk a lot about the high flyers because nobody thought the they would be surprise, there. surprise, yeah. Whereas the low riders, everyone thought that was going to be the main the outcome for everybody, and it wasn't. I understand. So it, it, let, let's talk for a minute about, uh, I, I don't think you talk a lot about this, but maybe you have some thoughts on it, uh, about the role of information, which is something we talk a lot about on this program. Uh, struck by two things. One is some of the people that I that you talk about are extremely savvy in how to take advantage of opportunities in the welfare system, but Medicaid being an obvious example for people who are poor. Did the po- did the so the first question is did the folks who struggle to pay for health care for themselves or their or their relatives did they not know about or did they not qualify for government aid? And then the second question would be also related. You no, know, it sounds different. 
the guy who found the the refrigeration certificate opportunity. Do people know the people who don't do that? Is it because they couldn't get the thirty five hundred dollars, or is it because they don't really have time or the opportunity to find out about those opportunities? Well, that those are very good questions, uh, and the answer, of course, is always a little bit of each everywhere. <clears throat> Being savvy is partly a matter of having certain kinds of skills in gaining information and having networks to turn to to exercise those skills with. And people really vary in the quality and range of their networks. And it's this very old mainstay observation in sociology now that weak ties are really important. When we distinguish strong ties and weak ties, we're talking about the difference between people you know very, very well who occupy a niche in the social world very similar to your own. That's a strong tie versus weak ties who are more diverse and who range outside of your social niche and therefore have access to information you probably don't already know. And this is an observation uh, first contributed by the sociologist Mark Granovetter at Stanford who studied people's job search behavior and noticed that those who had extensive weak ties did better than those who had mainly strong ties. And his explanation was that information travels better yep. in weak networks um, if you can activate them. Now, you need that, it's like a portfolio. You need some diversity. Yeah. Of, now, here's what I found. Um, there were people in my study who had the kind of weak ties Granovetter is talking about. That is, they had a variety of people in their social networks positioned in different occupations and industries who could, in theory, be very helpful. In practice, however, the ability to catalyze a network tie, the ability to get someone you know to do something for you, bad for you. Yeah. is very um, uneven. So, and, and Sandra Smith, who's a, a sociologist at Berkeley, has written a very good book about this called Lone Pursuit, in which she's looking at what causes social ties to activate on behalf of their job-searching friends. And she talks at great length, and this is an observation that first began in in my study. She was working with me as a graduate student at the time, that uh, workers are very doubtful or dubious or nervous about recommending their friends for job openings unless they have enormous confidence in them. If they think this person who's asking for help is going to embarrass them or reflect poorly on them or do a bad job for the employer and therefore ruin the reputation of the recommender, they won't do anything for them. It's a universal phenomenon, I think. It is a universal <laughs> phenomenon, but it has, it has a lot of profound consequences if your only real options for job finding run through networks. There really isn't going to be anything else. There isn't going to be a you job bulletin that will help you or a, uh, a career you, day on your campus. You don't have the, or you don't have the credentials that will open doors for you. Now you really are, in many ways uniquely reliant on your social network. And this is, I found this as well, that, you know, there were people who had very good social networks that uh, would help, and then there were people who had good social networks in terms of the ties, but they wouldn't help. Um, so there, and the same thing applies to something like Medicaid. Knowledge is part, is marketized in this way. There are people who are very good at finding out information, uh, from their fellows, uh, and Medicaid information tends to travel along these network lines. So I had one, one person in my story who got, who was pregnant when, when the study was going on, several times, in fact, and she got really sick. I mean, she was in trouble. She really was having a very troubled pregnancy. She had not seen a doctor at all for the first four or five months because she was broke and she wasn't on Medicaid. Finally, her aunts, who had been on Medicaid and on welfare before, you know, pulled her aside and said, listen, honey, you're going down to the Medicaid office right now, and you're going to sign up for welfare, and you're going to get Medicaid because you need to go to a doctor. And it was some combination of not knowing, not wanting to think about it, not wanting to be stigmatized that had led her not to do this before on her own steam. In the end, she did because she was so sick she was afraid of losing the baby, and she did go on to Medicaid, and, and they were able to help her. But so it's partly your aunt takes you aside and shows you how your, you know, your mother-in-law knows something you don't know. 
very, very few people, I find, blast through the bureaucratic walls between themselves and public benefits or even themselves and private uh, job opportunities without the insertion of a network in between. You asked about whether people don't get certificates because they lack the money or they lack the information, and there, again, the answer is usually both. Although I would say, <clears throat> in the case of a, a certificate like the air conditioning one, money is a huge barrier, huge. Um, money is a huge barrier for going back to school. Most of these people, I was, I was very surprised myself at how much more education my low-wage worker sample had received in the, over the eight-year period I studied them, because well over half of them were beyond school age at the point where I began the study. They were already in their 20s. And you don't really think of these folks as being glued to the world of, of further education. But, in fact, they were. Uh, they got GEDs at a high rate. They went back to school. Many of them finished college degrees, even though it took them a really long time. I mean, some of them had been going to school past high school for 10, 15 years. Because they couldn't obviously go full-time. They couldn't they support could, themselves. And that was precisely the point. They couldn't go full-time. So they would go part-time and work, or they would drop out of school and work full-time and then drop out of work and go to school full-time and back and forth and back and forth. And that was a very common pattern. But what was intriguing to me was they really wanted to be in school. If they'd had the money, they would have stayed in school. But they didn't have the money. They were creating their own financial aid system by working in these crappy jobs. And so the lack of money would often be the biggest barrier toward either further education or the kind of certificate that would really make a difference. And, of course, if you take 15 years to finish your undergraduate degree, you will reap benefits. We know this from Tom Kane's work that every year of schooling makes a difference. But the sheepskin effect, the lack of a diploma, means you're deprived of whatever additional kick the diploma gives you for a very long time. Yeah, it's a... Um... I mean, it's an interesting question you talk about a little bit in the book about the role of the credential by itself versus the social and practical skills you acquire. Obviously, it's a mix of all of them. But, exactly. Um, I want to turn to an issue that that runs through the book, which is – I don't know if you talk about it very much explicitly. Is It, it, doesn't, it doesn't get its own section or chapter, but for me as, as an economist, I thought about it a lot reading it. It, um, it comes back to a conversation we had a couple episodes back with uh, – Edmund Phelps, who Nobel laureate in economics, talking about the nature of work in America and whether people have good jobs or bad jobs on average and the satisfaction we get from our jobs. Obviously, in, in this time period, and I think uh, in the modern last 25 years in general, there's been a huge increase in what's called knowledge workers, people who are able to use their minds in all kinds of interesting ways. And probably down at the opposite end of that would be someone punching a cash register with pictures of a hamburger on it, which is the closest I think we get in, in modern times to Charlie Chaplin in mm -hmm. modern times. You know, this not very stimulating environment. But even in that environment, you know, you talk about the nature of work. The, the, your, your, uh, the people you're talking to talk about the pleasure and satisfactions they get, the things they learn for, about how to interact with people. But what I'm driving at is this. We don't just care about how much money we make. It, it matters a lot, and especially at the low end. Obviously, you want to make a lot more than a lot less. But one of the themes that runs through the conversations are, is the role of satisfaction, pride, prestige, satisfaction, et cetera. And talk about how important that is to the people that you talk to. Talk about – I was particularly moved by the people who talked about their – their ability to be more autonomous on the job, make their own decisions rather than being micromanaged and constantly criticized by their boss. Talk about those issues in among folks down at the very lowest end of the working poor. I think the first important point to make here is that being a worker, any kind of worker, is valued in our society by people who hold even these terrible jobs because the alternative is to be totally outside the status system in our society and to be completely devalued, to be unemployed, to be never working, to be, you know, without any kind of occupational identity is the end of the social universe. And so for these people, they, they sit in an odd 
position in what a sort of a pyramid. Below them, they can see people, and they know plenty of them in their own families and neighborhoods who are not working. Those people are despised. Then they can turn around and see up above them all of the people who have much better jobs than they have. And so they are sort of suspended between these two categories. They feel superior to those who are out of the labor force, and they don't respect them. And well, they, they, resent, they resent the fact that they take claim on some of their earnings, too, yeah, you point they, out. Yeah, they resent them. They despise them. They don't think they should have to pay uh, from their tax you know, money out of their paycheck for the taxes that are required to, to support a welfare system. And this is right up to and including the people in their own families, some of whom are watching over their children yeah. and making it possible for them to go to work. But they turn around and look up the pyramid and say, you know, think to themselves, I, I don't look like and I'm not going to ever be a doctor, a lawyer, or any of the things, up, a teacher, any of the people who are up above me. So they do occupy this kind of tense limbo between those two extremes. But I think the first and most important lesson I was trying to draw from this or or idea I was trying to express was how much just being in the labor force, in the workforce, matters to them. They really take pride in being able to, to to have a job. At the same time, they would cover over their uniforms, even on a hot day, some of them would commute incredibly long hours to take a job just like the kind of the same job is available right smack in their neighborhood because they don't want to be seen working in this kind of job. So there's a weird kind of pride that's mixed with embarrassment when you work at the bottom of the of the labor force. And one of the things that's characteristic about those jobs, of course, is that you're heavily surveilled. You don't have a lot of autonomy. You certainly don't have it in a fast food joint. You are on something like a modern day, as you put it, Charlie Chaplin assembly line. Nonetheless, people do, as all the sociologists studying the workforce will tell you, people do take a lot of pleasure in the fellowship of the workplace. Yeah. Not all the time, of course. Sometimes they're, they have horrible... Some the personalities, yeah. Yeah, sometimes there are personality clashes and horrible coworkers. But a lot of the people I was spending time with would socialize off the job with the people they were working with. And in fact, over time, and this I thought was a very important element of the book, of the first book in particular, um, they were drawing away from the people in their neighborhoods who were jobless, socially. They were drawing away from them. And instead were spending almost all of their time with fellow workers. And, And I argued in No Shame in My Game that that was a very important aspect of a kind of identity transformation that really matters for low-wage kids, that is, to glue them into the mainstream of the work world and avoid ever returning or having anything to do with the streets, this kind of social distance from the non-worker is quite critical. But there's a distinction between – there are two types of unemployed people that, that run through the book. There are people on welfare who are draining cash sometimes directly from the working poor, but there are people who are – what we call the underground economy, they're drug dealers. They're attached to that trade through some, some in some way. They're making a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was fascinated by the tension between the attraction of that job and and which it is a job. It's just not on on the books uh, anywhere. And the fear people had of it because they associated with a whole set of pathologies. Yeah. Um- most of these folks have siblings who are in the drug trade or neighbors, and their basic view was, this is scary. This exposes everyone around you to tremendous risk. Do not come near me. Stay away. Um, they don't know what the sociologists who study the drug trade could tell you, that actually very few people in the drug trade make good money. They don't know that. They do think it's flashy. And it is flashy for a very tiny number of people. But for most people in the drug trade, it's risky, it's dangerous, and, and you, you don't you make d- much money. And you die young. You're, yeah. You die young and you're below the minimum wage. They actually didn't know that. They mainly thought, this is too scary, and I don't want you coming around. Um, but, of course, those folks do come around. And part of what goes on in these neighborhoods is a kind of truce 
at the best of times, between those who are engaged in the drug trade and those who want nothing to do with it but know the people in the drug trade. It's very important to know those people because the people you really have to fear are the strangers. Strangers have no obligations to you at all. Strangers don't need to worry about whether, if they're violent, they're going to affect you. But someone you've known all your life, even if they're doing drugs and you're not, will be more careful and respectful of your safety than those who are total strangers. Um, People in other parts of the informal economy, though, are a totally different story, and many of the people in my book are moving in and out of the fast food labor force and other jobs that they held later on, and what we would call the sort of unregulated informal sector of unlicensed skilled work. So there are some... Give some examples of that. Well, for example, one young man who I got to know quite well uh, was taken under the wing by his dad, who taught him how to do electrical, con- electrical work, uh, plumbing, the kind of very skilled Handyman work. stuff. Pardon me? Handyman stuff at a high level. Some, some, a kind of a cross between a handyman and a construction yeah. worker. Um, in Harlem and in Washington Heights, which is a Hispanic neighborhood north of Harlem, you don't call a unionized plumber to fix your leaky sink. He's expensive. It just costs <laughs> too much money. Yeah. So there's a whole cadre of people who are doing work that is off the books, but not illegal. It's just not licensed. And it's not... Often, I'm sure it's a cash business. It's uh, totally it's cash. Not surprisingly, Absolutely. it is cash business. And some um, barter, I bet too. There is some. There is barter, but you, at least in the period I was studying, it was mainly a cash economy, but it wasn't a licensed one. So this young man, who I first met when he was working behind the counter of a fast food restaurant, his dad taught him how to do this stuff. A lot of a lot of men do uh, car repair the same way. And so what they do is they've got, you know, these cars that are parked by the side of the house or out on the street. They don't have a shop, but they do the repair work, uh, you know, basically out of their homes. Or they fix radios. uh, Or they tinker with cell phones. Um, This is the kind of stuff which goes on in the shadow economy, but it's not illegal in the sense of the drug trade. Yeah, that's a great example. But it's important, and for the people I was, I was studying, even in the formal sector, they would regard those people as working. They don't really care that they're working off the books or underground. Sure, no, they have they a have job. real jobs. They're just not paying taxes. Yeah, and they're providing a service oh, that's clearly valued. Often providing a lot more than you can do if you're just flipping burgers. Yeah, that's neat. And I'm sure they found that very satisfying work on top of it. They did. They did because it's very skilled and people are lining up to get their services. But in order to do that, someone has to train you. I mean, that really is crucial. And so there again, networks matter. You know, will your dad train you? And if he won't, would somebody else step in? Um, You need somebody to show you those ropes. And uh, so you could either try and get a certificate like the refrigeration guy or try and get somebody who can just show you how it's done. We've got about 10 minutes or so left, and I'd like to put forward a set of ideas that I got from the book and, and get your reaction there. Okay. They play to my bias, so I, <laughs> it, but at least I'm honest about it. Um, what, what's interesting about these kind of social issues is you know, there are short-run problems and long-run problems. There are short-term solutions. There are long-term solutions, and as a bottom-up guy rather than a top-down guy um, – it was easy for me to find evidence in your book for my view of the world. So I'm going to give you that and then, <laughs> okay. and then let you say – you can either disagree or tell me I'm you – know, I've, <laughs> okay. I've got a confirmation bias problem, which I know I do. And I work, try to work pretty hard at it to fight it. <laughs> so here, let, let me give you three uh, reactions that I think – three policy uh, conclusions I, I gained from your book, perhaps fairly, perhaps not. Number one is the importance of growth for the economy as a whole. That, as you point out, these were good years. The American economy was growing. Uh, a lot of people point to the, the great moderation, the mi- mid-80s through 2008 or so, which was a time of relatively uh, unbumpy economic mm-hmm. growth. And that that is a, a good policy goal, not just for the top but for the bottom as well. So that's conclusion number one. Conclusion number two would be the importance of making our schools better, that many, many of these people, they have some personal challenges, they have family issues, but they, a lot of them didn't finish high school. Now, there are a thousand reasons for that, 
But one of the reasons has to do with the fact that our school system is not very good and we ought to make it better. We might disagree on how to get there, but that seems to be point number two uh, that would be important. Point number three would be, strangely enough, for these troubled times of debt and finance, access to capital and credit. So the guy who wants needs $3,500 to get his refrigeration certificate he has not a lot of access to capital. He doesn't. It's hard for him to borrow money. He doesn't have a credit card, even if he wanted to run it up a balance that he might have uncertainty about being able to repay it. He doesn't have an uncle usually who can rent lend him that money, or or a parent. So it's ironic that a lot of economists uh, and, and other thinkers have talked about microfinance as a way of fighting poverty in Africa and elsewhere. It seems like it wouldn't be a bad idea in the United States for some of the, some folks to have access to small, low interest rate loans um, administered in some creative way. Probably not by the banking system, and I understand that isn't going to happen for a while. So those three issues for me are crucial: the, the overall health of the economy, the tools that people need through the school system, and the socialization as well, and the access to to be able to borrow now and then. What do you think of that? I think they're all important points, so let me go through them in turn. First, the growth point. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, the fact that my study took place during a period in which the economy was growing so fast made a huge difference for these mobility patterns. I am really certain that if I had done that study almost any other time in my academic professional life, I wouldn't have found the kinds of mobility that I found. It was very clearly tied to prosperity and the and basically the trickle down of that prosperity um, that it was lifting the boats at the bottom. I have often said when asked to speak about this issue that there is really very little in my judgment that we could not do if we had full employment, and very little we're going to be able to do if we don't have a lot more jobs. That jobs really are so critical to almost every aspect of the social world that my informants inhabit. It makes a difference for their families, for their kids, for their own security, for their the elders. There's just no aspect of life in Harlem that wouldn't be vastly improved by more jobs, which in turn, you know, comes about partly because of economic growth. So I totally agree with this. I wish I knew how to manufacture it because <laughs> Nobody seems to know how to do that right now, and these people are, are really suffering. Now, your second point about schools, I, would, I agree with it in part, but I want to issue a, a, an amendment. These people know that schooling is important. So it's not that they don't know, and that was the reigning view at the time, that they didn't appreciate or understand the role of education. Agreed. And the assumption is that's the reason that they drop out or they take so long and the conclusion I reached after studying them at close range for a long time is that that is absolutely untrue. You just look at how much effort they are putting into trying to go back to school and how much stick, sticking power mm-hmm. uh, they exhibit to, for school, and, and you just have to conclude that that motivational argument is wrong. Now, does that mean they come from good schools? No, they don't come from good schools. And if they did come from good schools, would it matter? Well, yes, if they had the resources to go to school, but they generally don't. And so I would say that um, money matters here. And I don't know whether I would say access to credit matters as much as access to financial aid Mm -hmm. that will make it possible for them to continue going to school as close to full-time as possible would make a difference because the faster you complete, the faster you reap the benefits. Um, And they couldn't do it very fast. So... The quality of schools matters, but most of the people I was studying came out of some of the worst high schools in New York City. And, I, you know, they still managed. If we want everyone to turn into a rocket scientist or to take my job or your job, then, yes, we need to see a vast improvement in schools. And I would never say it was a bad thing to do anyhow. But I've studied people who've come out of the worst-performing high schools in New York, and I've often seen, especially for those who are in vocational schools, that what they needed most of all were teachers who respected them, teachers who treated them like adults because they feel like adults much earlier than middle-class kids do, um, and often hold them to high standards as an expression of their their thinking of them as adults, Um, people who sort of take them seriously, and they need safety and stability. 
the the students that I've been looking at, well, like they graduated. This is in another study I'm doing with Mary Britton from Harvard, who um, graduated from decent vocational schools were often there because they had run away from extremely dangerous zone schools. The the things we are asking our young people to live through just to go to school, the violence they encounter, the the fights in the hallway, the weapons that are in the neighborhood, uh, in between their home and their school, it's extraordinary. They are living with unbelievable levels of street violence that make it very hard for them to go to school. And the survivors, the ones who've been, you know, who are successful, and this is a big selection bias, the ones you're looking at who get to these vocational schools, their original motivation isn't school quality. They find the school quality to be better once they get there. It's mainly just they don't want to be knifed in the hallway. So we have to ask ourselves as a society, how is it that we permit or turn a blind eye to schools that subject kids who are just trying to get an education to that level of risk, because that is an indictment. No, it's an incredible tragedy. It is an indictment of the society we live in. So safety, stability, and financing for schooling, all of these things matter. In terms of access to capital and credit, well, this is a little tricky. Uh, When you look at – I've written a book called uh, The Missing Class, which is about the near poor – and that's where I discussed at great length these questions about credit. And, and here's what I find. People who use credit cards are usually those who aren't at the very bottom. As you say, the very, very bottom is too high a risk, even for these very risky credit card companies. It's one rung up from there mm-hmm. uh, among those who are like 100 to 200% of the poverty line that you really see explosive use of credit, and it's not so good for them. Here's what I found in my studies of the near poor. These are people who often are upwardly mobile into that category. They have been poor for a long time, and then either because the economy got better or they managed to make an upward move like those in chutes and ladders, they find themselves working in better jobs, and they suddenly think, you know, I really don't want to sit on a couch full of holes anymore. I would like a nicer standard of living. But their wages aren't actually high enough to permit that not on cash. So they start using credit, and they get themselves into terrible, terrible debt. And so I have very mixed feelings about what credit does for people. If it can permit them to you know, stay in school, maybe, but they tend to be averse to loans for this reason. And there are a lot of economists trying to figure out why are they so averse to loans, but they are. Because the loans have to be paid back, yeah, and they're sure. afraid they won't be able to. It's good for the good thing to worry about. It's not <laughs> right, and so they tend not to do that. They tend to drop out of school instead, rather than take a loan. Even if the loan would let them finish schooling faster and earn higher wages, they're just afraid they won't be able to pay it back. So the way that credit actually figures in their lives is usually credit cards, and that is a dicey business, yeah. I find. For most of them, they don't understand what it means to buy something on credit. They don't understand how much this thing is actually costing them. Their consumer education is terrible. Well, it's kind of a, again, they're not the only ones. (laughs) No, no, they're not, but the consequences are really pernicious for them. And the bankruptcy laws have changed in ways that make the the damage much greater. I'm just going to close with a question I just was curious about. You interviewed hundreds of people for these studies. You used graduate students. You weren't the only person, obviously, doing – you didn't do every study, every interview yourself. my day job. Right. But you must have gotten to know many of these people, oh, or, your, or your students did, and, and their stories are so rich. Uh, again, it's one of the things that makes the book uh, not just informative, but inter- but entertaining. Thank you. Um, do you stay in touch with them? Do you follow them? Do you, do you imagine did. going back in 10 years and finding mm, out what happened to them? Well, I stayed in touch with them for eight years, which is actually a pretty More than long enough, time. perhaps. Yeah, no, I understand. That, that. is a really long time. Yeah. There, there aren't many social science studies I can think of other than something like the panel study of income dynamics, which is yeah. not this kind of it's a different thing. You know, uh, intense interview. Face to face, yeah. For eight years. And when I finished, I thought, you know, I have to finish sometime. And I went on to lots of other research, so I have not stayed in touch with them very much beyond that. I have had a couple of occasions when I saw some of them. Uh, and w- was able to kind of catch up on how things were going. My fieldwork team came together at one point to uh, sort of go find all of them and, and recount their lives. But I, I have to confess that I, 
I really haven't since I closed the research for that book because there were so many other people whose lives I got interested in. I understand. My guest today has been Catherine Newman. Catherine, thanks for being part of EconTalk. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.